December 18, 1932, was the day of the first ever NFL playoff game, which was an indoor bout between the Portsmouth Spartans and the Chicago Bears. This marked a revolution for the future of the NFL. In the same year, the person responsible for sparking a revolution for pro football in the 1960s was born. He had big dreams of bringing the NFL to Dallas, Texas, but when he was shot down, he ended up starting his own league, and he called this personal pet project the American Football League. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you Come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. So this time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is December 28th, 1958, and we are at Yankee Stadium. You see, this game was between the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts. Some consider this to be the greatest football game of all time. Happened to be the first sudden death in a championship. We talked about this game in the past with, you know, Chris Berman and his favorite game ever and the game that changed the way people looked at pro football, you know, legitimizing football as a competitor to baseball for America's favorite sport. But that wasn't the only thing that this would end up doing. It would spark interest in more people around the country to get a team. You know, of course, everyone wants a team, but pretty much it's going to boil down to those guys that got the cheddar at the bank. And one of these particular individuals was 26-year-old Lamar Hunt. Now, he was a third-string pass catcher at SMU, so he understood the popularity of football in Texas. You know, he grew up near the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. So when he saw the opportunity, when the Chicago Cardinals were struggling over there in Chicago, He's like, I want to bring them to Dallas. I want to bring a professional football team to the heart of Texas. You know, just bring them to Dallas, Texas, and let's just get these fans what they've really been waiting for. But the then NFL commissioner, Burt Bell, he wasn't giving him any time of day. He said that, you know, they don't want to expand the NFL. They're they're happy with the 12 teams. But Lamar Hunt, he would have a friend and his first ally, Mr. Bud Adams, who was an oil tycoon himself. He's all like, you know what, together, son, we're going to get together. We're going to be like, if you won't let me in, then fine. We're going to start our own league. Like many leagues before, the NFL was like, okay, dudes, good luck. Come see me when you're done with your temper tantrum. So they did. August 15th, 1959, the AFL had the official first league meeting. Then on November 30th of 1959, they elected Joe Foss, the first AFL commissioner. He was formerly a governor of South Dakota and a World War II hero. He was a fighter pilot in the Pacific. And as we've discussed in previous, you know, episode with the merger and everything, there was some bad blood from the beginning. And supposedly, Minnesota franchise was originally intending to go for the AFL, but the NFL told them just kind of hang in there, you know, up until the draft and then defect to the NFL side. Now, I don't know how it really went down, but that's kind of the story that the AFL guys gave. So, the Oakland Raiders would end up taking Minnesota's spot in their draft selections. And even though the NFL said they did not want to expand, well, by golly, in 1960, the NFL formed the Dallas Cowboys team in Texas to counter Lamar Hunt's Dallas Texans. Like I said, they didn't want to expand. 
maybe they were a little tiny, just a little bit scared of a possible AFL league that could create too much momentum in the Dallas, Texas region. But with this, there were eight original franchises of the AFL. There were the Denver Broncos, the Boston Patriots, the New York Titans, the Buffalo Bills, the aforementioned Oakland Raiders and Dallas Texans, the Houston Oilers, and the Los Angeles Chargers. There are links at the show notes, including a couple real good videos about the history of the AFL that I recommend you checking out. Which, by the way, you can get to the show notes through your podcast player of choice or head to thefootballhistorydude.com. Also, I ask that you subscribe for free to this show by mashing that little subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. So, our first year is 1959. They had to draft players somehow, right? This happened to also be the same day that Boston was awarded their franchise. So what did Bud Adams do? He took a Street and Smith magazine, he circled all the top players at each position, they clipped out the top 10 at each position, they took the newspaper clippings, they stuck their names into a hat, and then they all said, let's draw from the hat and pick them out. So not really your most scientific uh, draft combine style type of picking the player pool, but hey, you gotta do it somehow, right? So, the other problem with this is they had to draft the same players as the NFL did. So, signing before the draft was very common. Now, they talked of as soon as the last college game was over, they would run onto the field with a contract to get there before the other league would. You know, part of this whole signing players kind of war. And at the beginning, the most famous one was the 1959 Heisman Trophy winner, Billy Cannon, would end up signing with both leagues. But you're like, well, how does that happen? You can't play both games. You can't play in both leagues. I mean, he originally signed with the Rams of the NFL. But then Bud Adams told him, Billy, I'm going to double your salary if you come over with my boys. So, of course, Billy wondered, well, how do I get that double money, man? So he just signed on the line, signed with the Oilers as well. Then I saw where it went to court and ultimately the judge favored that Billy Cannon can you know, choose wherever he wants to go. He has the right to do so. And so what did he do? He chose the Oilers because they doubled his salary. So with the figuring out how to get the guys on the team, you know, as far as draft picks out of the way and that kind of thing, it was still very beginning infancy stages of the game here. I mean, we're talking, if you look at these stadiums that they were playing in, the random stadiums, it's like they're playing high school stadiums where It was like, don't, you know, forget the whole bring your own beer kind of thing. It was like, you got to bring your own chair. I saw some games where just, I swear, it was like they're in the middle of a cow pasture and they just had a bunch of lawn chairs on the side. At least that's what it looked like from the videos and such. So another way that they tried to, I guess, cause a public type of stir was they held tryouts for just your average dudes. I mean, Los Angeles held a huge tryout where they said that every bartender and truck driver came out and it was a great publicity stunt. I mean, most of them weren't going to make the team, of course, but at least they got to feel like they were part of a professional organization, and I got to try out, and, you know, they could tell their kids and everything, and they could say, look it, even though I didn't make that team, I got to try out for that team, and supposedly they put some of the draft picks into the tryout, so even though, you know, most of the the guys that came out, they weren't going to make the team, they could say, yeah, look, it was a success, because these guys made the team that were here today, even though they already knew. We selected them and drafted them, so of course they're going to make it, you know? And somehow, it all worked out. Because ABC was the first network to sign a TV contract with the American Football League that year. July 30th of 1960, 
was a first-ever AFL game, which is a preseason game between the Boston Patriots and the Buffalo Bills, where the Patriots beat the Bills 28-7. So it's like, come on, from the beginning, the Bills got to be dealing with the Patriots just putting the shellacking all over to them. Then skip forward a little bit to September 9th of 1960, we had our very first-ever AFL regular season game. The Boston Patriots kicked off to the Denver Broncos to start that regular season off. The Denver Broncos ended up winning this first regular season game of the AFL, but it was good to see that things were kicked off in the right direction. Well, as good as it could be for a first year, you know, first league every time kind of thing. And the AFL, you know, it was very young, trying to figure things out. Players were mostly has-beens, never-wers, old-timers trying to get back into professional football, that kind of thing. And it was still something to kind of tip your hat to Mr. Lamar Hunton and the other owners that started this league because they started something that even though at the time they might not have realized it, would end up challenging, like truthfully actually challenging the NFL for a possible legitimate spot atop the professional football ranks. Then in January, actually January 1st of 1961, the Houston Oilers defeated the Los Angeles Chargers for the first ever AFL championship game. Then on January 14th of 1961, I wouldn't really call this, you know, like the most pivotal moment or anything like that, but it was definitely a crucial, critical event happened on this day. On January 14th of 1961, an end from the Chicago Bears, Willard Duviel finished his NFL option contract. Then he decided to join the Houston Oilers, becoming the first player to, quote unquote, defect from the NFL to join the ranks of the AFL. So this is kind of one of those things where, I'm throwing my flag in the stains and I'm just saying, yep, this is something that makes us kind of actually think about the possibility of the AFL having some traction. So then we have to jump to the 1961 season. And even though we decided that there's some traction going on, there's a lot of stuff that still is prevailing as what I'm calling the new league-itis. You know, they had some crazy weird things happening and administrative, financial, all sorts of things where you could tell it was a brand new league and they didn't have a whole lot of time to put this thing together. Um, One game that got brought up in this video that I'm discussing was the 1961 Boston Patriots versus the Dallas Texans. And this game occurred in Boston. The Patriots were ahead 28-21. The Texans had the ball. Cotton Davidson tossed a deep bomb to Chris Burford and Chris made a diving catch to the one-yard line. Now, the clock showed that there was no time left on the clock up there, but the official said there was time for one more play. So they had to push everybody off the field, including fans, get them off the field, let's get this last play down, you know? So then that last play, it was a call from Hank Stram. You know, why not go to this Chris Burford guy again? Call it a slant to him. Quarterback drops back, tosses the ball. Ball gets deflected in the back of the end zone. Game over, you know, typical. He didn't write, it's just... No big deal. It always gets ha- things happen that way. The Patriots and Seahawks, they found that out, but that was really more of an interception, not a tip pass. But whoa, 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 not so fast. The person who deflected the ball was a fan. I mean, you could see him coming in from the side of the camera, knocked the ball down. It definitely was not a player, some dude in a coat. Kind of reminded me of that fan, you know, the Chicago Cubs fan, you know, caught that ball and that didn't turn out for that guy. Let's just put it that way. But it was the same kind of lack of attention to detail and control, kind of what they were discussing as far as just the rodeo circus, just they do whatever they want and nothing gets done and, you know, they have no sense of direction and that kind of thing. 
And this kind of brought on, um, not this specific play, but there was an article in the New York Times from Arthur Daly, a little quote that kind of summed up how a lot of the people thought about the AFL at the time. And one is such. So far, the AFL has been truly a joke league, earning itself the name, the Mickey Mouse League from the NFL. And then there was another quote from uh, the New York Herald Tribune, this time from Red Smith, and it went as such. In the eyes of the fans, the hastily formed AFL is a second-rate outfit afflicted with cast-off players, wobbly financing, and bullheaded owners. But I tell you what, the bullheaded owners thing, that's not necessarily a bad thing as far as willing to continue the charge. Maybe bullheaded is the fact of not listening to anybody. Yeah, that could turn you in the wrong direction. But John Madden, I mean, he's iconic. Everybody knows John Madden, of course, the video game and the broadcasting has even brought him further to light for the younger generations. But he had nothing but good things to say about the owners. And he didn't even care that everyone else thought the league was going to fail at the time. And there's a quote that came from John Madden describing how he thought the AFL figured to be around for a while, and it went as such. I knew that the AFL was going to stay when someone said to Lamar Hunt's father, H.L. Hunt, you know, your son lost a million dollars this year, and doesn't that bother you? And he says, well, not really. At that rate, he can just go on another 150 years. And I thought, that's it. It's like a fighter. You hit a guy with your best punch, and boom, and the guy just laughs at you. That statement put everything into perspective and says, hey, if you're going to stay in this thing, well, you better bring your lunch because it's not going to be over quickly, end quote. Now, think of that with John Madden voice. Of course, I can't really emulate the dude and everybody, I think, knows what John Madden's all about. So moving on to John Madden, that kind of thing. Early on, it sounded like Oakland, they were having struggles financially. They needed some quick cash. Otherwise, they were going to fold which would really make it hard for the AFL to keep going on because you lose one of your eight teams and you're down to seven and that's really not that good of a league. So the Oakland Raiders, they would turn to Ralph Wilson, the Bills owner. He would help them out. He would just you know, lend them some cash and just keep some things going on. And this wasn't uh, the only thing that caused this, but in annual meetings, they'd talk about how much they lost. And just as a whole league, you know, they lost a lot of money. So they ended up leading to them calling themselves the Foolish Club, and Lamar Hunt would even send Christmas cards to the owners and stuff with this uh, letterhead with the, the Foolish Club, and money was tight. So they practiced at grade school sandlots and all sorts of just weird, crazy places wherever they could get some free, you know, practice time in. And Joe Namath, he told of a time where before practice, the coach would, you know, bring all the players, and they would line them up, and they was like, grab your helmets. And Joe Namath was sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? The coach would say, all right, we're all going to walk this field and we're going to pick up rocks. Now, think about it. Nowadays, especially these prima donnas, that would not happen. And the stadiums, we talked about it earlier, they were a joke as well. I mean, it was just crazy. But again, this is the first few years into the AFL. This is a league just trying to get their grassroots on the ground. And most believe that it would never go anywhere. I mean, there was the NFL, of course, thought it was a joke. There was a NFL owner, Art Modell, and he had a quote that went as such. We thought it was an inferior league and had an inferior brand of football. We scoffed at it. We laughed at it, perhaps unwisely, but we felt we were the National Football League and everything else by comparison is a weaker substitution. Now, at the time, I can understand because, like I said, they had this ragtag dudes and borrowed uniforms and stadiums they didn't belong in and that kind of thing and you just practice facilities that were... <laughs> great schools and just all this kind of thing but 
With all that naysaying, I'll tell you what, the AFL, they banded together even more. They had a camaraderie that wasn't the same as the NFL because they all had this kind of, I got to fight my way to get in there and that kind of thing. So, speaking of camaraderie, this is jumping forward a little bit, but in 1965, at the AFL All-Star Game in New Orleans, they dealt with some racism and that kind of thing where they had separate hotels for the players and they couldn't go into the same clubs and they couldn't use the same cabs and all that kind of thing. So they were not appreciative of this. And something I thought that was pretty cool of the AFL players, didn't matter who it was, they banded together. They walked out on New Orleans and they said, we are not going to have a game here. We will not have our all-star game if we cannot all be together. So they rode their plane to Houston to have their all-star game there. Now, it was a lot less fans because it was kind of ad hoc and that kind of thing, but they did not care. They felt it was worth it. And that's something that at the beginning, at least, the AFL definitely had a leg up because they were willing, everybody's, bring them all on, you know, everybody's welcome into our club. It wasn't like we were just going to kick anybody out, that kind of thing. Doesn't matter your color, your religion, your race, I don't care what it is. We are in this thing together. We're going to band and we are going to try to take down the big dogs. That's the NFL. And even though they were doing this, Another quote came from Frank Litsky of the New York Times, and it went as such. Since the American League started playing in 1960, the older National League has practically ignored its existence. And even though they feel like they've practically ignored its existence, the NFL had to be at least a little bit worried, because they ended up coming out with a 160-page booklet titled, The NFL and You, trying to convince college stars of the rich history of the NFL and why you should become an NFL player. Don't play for that AFL league with no history. In the AFL, their pamphlet was basically bare. I mean, they didn't have a history. They were only there for a couple of years at the time. But this kind of played into the advantage a little bit for Al Locasell of the Raiders. He would tell recruits that they could either go to the NFL and they could read about the history, or they could come to the AFL and they can help write the history. And just to kind of push it a little further along, Bud Adams, he talked of cash offerings, houses, cattle, Whatever it took to coax the players to the AFL. I mean, Madden even described how the AFL, they couldn't tell the NFL what to do. The NFL, they could not tell the AFL what to do. So have at it. Do whatever you got to do to try to get the players on your team. There was no commissioner of both leagues to be able to enforce rules that did not exist. But it all ended up coming down to the fight for star college athlete players and bringing the fans to the stadiums, which the AFL was way behind compared to the NFL and even the CFL for the average attendance per game. Let's just say the first few years of the AFL were rough, but at least it was a start. And it was something that the NFL, I guess you could say, saw coming, but they didn't see coming, and they ultimately did not take the AFL seriously enough because, well, let's just leave it at that. Because in the second part of this uh, two-part series, we'll figure out how the AFL got to where it was the... well, merger time, you know. And with that being said, although the momentum for the American Football League was starting to mount, most across the nation felt it was just a matter of time before the Little Brother League faded into the night, just like every other competitor in the history of the NFL. However, the owners of the AFL would not go down without swinging. The AFL created such a unique experience for the fans, it could be compared to walking into a movie where you have low expectations, only to walk out of that theater blown away more than you ever anticipated. This fan engagement ultimately led to the AFL-NFL merger. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Football History Dude. 
and we're able to gain some knowledge nuggets from part one of the brief history of the AFL. Next week, we finish this story to see how the AFL created a situation where a merger was the best way for both leagues to survive. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>